Well, the, the Lord has placed in all of our hearts a desire to celebrate a desire to rejoice at something. That's why in the Old Testament, when, when God established a nation and established a culture, He gave them various holidays to celebrate, whether it's Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year, or the Shavuot, the celebration of the giving of the law, or the Peshach, which is the Passover, or, or Yom Kippur. All of these are just an acknowledgement of us, how we have a need to, to celebrate Hallmark knows that very well, is that uh, the more we celebrate, the more that they receive finances, it's really, they earn money, and the more we celebrate, and all sorts of Hallmark holidays, there's, there's Mother's Day, and Father's Day, and Grandparents' Day, and Boss's Day, and Secretary's Day, and, and I didn't know this, but how many of you knew that this past Thursday was Siblings' Day? What? I didn't, I didn't know anything about that until my, my sister, um, texted a note between all of us siblings. I have three sisters and a brother, and so all five of us got this note from my oldest. It says, I guess it's siblings day. Have a happy one. I love you all. And then the, the youngest of us siblings, my youngest brother said, he says, um, happy National Siblings Day to my closest compatible organ donors. That's kind of what, what he said. I, I thought that was, that was pretty funny. Um, you, you'll see the, the thing about what I mentioned last week about Facebook. Facebook has talked about how um, um, uh, just birthdays have become more and more of a holiday. You know, uh, many people, like it was my birthday last week. You remember that? And uh, anybody's birthday this week, maybe? Anybody's birthday? Owen George! And someone's today? You're this week. Owen George, you're today, right? Can we sing happy birthday or, or, to Owen? I think he'd be really happy. Happy birthday to you, woo! Happy birthday to you, woo! Happy birthday, dear Owen. Happy birthday to you. Good, good, good. Um, our country knows about how we celebrate Fourth of July. We celebrate then. Um, each February, we celebrate President's Day. November, Thanksgiving. In, in the church holiday, we have, we have Christmas, um, Easter's coming up. Today is Palm Sunday, right? We, we saw the, the kids come forth, the kids come around. And it's a day that we, we celebrate and we rejoice in the, just the coming of Jesus into, uh, into Jerusalem. The, the day on the triumphal entry coming in. And we read this morning from Matthew 21 when Jesus rode in on a donkey and they, they laid down their cloaks. And they laid down their palm branches so that Jesus would have a, a nice prepared place to ride. It's as if, you will, they were rolling out the red carpet. They were rolling out the, the green palm branch carpet. And people were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna just means save. Oh, save us now is what the desire was there. And, and, and the greatness of the celebration really came in the fact that, that, that Jesus coming into Jerusalem rightly identified him rightly identified him as the type of king that he was. Because when, when Jesus came in as king, he was a humble king. He was a servant king. When he rode into Jerusalem, it wasn't on the pride of a white stallion. It was in the humility of a donkey, a beast of burden. And when he came, he didn't conquer Rome with military might. He conquered the devil with a spiritual victory. He came as a servant. He came healing diseases and, and washing feet. 
and dying in our place. And the fact that He came as a servant was central to His mission. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. My message this morning is entitled, Christ Became a Servant, because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in our text. Romans 15, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. So if you haven't done so already, you can open your Bibles. Romans chapter 15, that's 949, your pew Bibles. Romans 15, 8 through 13 is our text. In our text this morning, Paul's going to explain why it is that Jesus became a servant. Or what was his purpose? Or, or what was his attention? Or what did he accomplish? And the idea of Jesus coming as a servant really flows nicely out of everything that we've been looking at the past couple of weeks in, in Romans 14 and 15. Paul's been addressing the conflicts that can come in a church when there are difference of opinions in a congregation. And Paul's counsel was this, is that you who are strong bend to those who are weak. Look at what it says in chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Right, don't despise one another, don't judge one another, but rather, if God has welcomed you, you welcome them. And also we see the same thing. Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Right? We are strong in faith. We know and understand our liberty. We understand the freedom that's in Jesus. But for the sake of unity, the strong will limit their liberty in order not to offend the weak. And, and, and the way you do that is by, by living a love life, right? Living a life that's other-centered, that's not just looking at pleasing yourself, but focused upon pleasing others. There we go. Let's, let's see if this works. Um, that's focusing upon pleasing others. Rather than just pleasing yourself. And that's exactly what Christ did. In fact, let's just shut, let's just shut down the, the overhead thing. Because it's not working today. Um, we should be others focused in the way we live. Not pleasing others. That's what it says here. Let us, each of us, verse 2, please his neighbor for his good. To build him up. For Christ did not please himself. And there it is. Jesus set the example for us. Of not, not pleasing himself, right? But pleasing others. And when he came to die upon the cross, he didn't come for himself. It was great discomfort to himself. He, he got himself killed. But why did he do that? He did that for the sake of others. And that's what a servant does. A, a servant is one who, who pleases others. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Again, Mark 10.45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Romans 15, verses 8 through 13, really we see the reasons why he came as a servant. Let's just read it now. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Here it is. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And, second purpose, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice O Gentiles with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. 
We see here some reasons why Jesus came as a servant. The first one here is to confirm His promises. To confirm His promises. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Here it is. In order to confirm the promises to the patriarchs. That that really takes us back to to the Jews, right? The patriarchs, that's who they are. The the fathers. But it takes even further back to calls them the circumcision. And when you think about circumcision, that all started with the patriarch Abraham. He received the covenant of circumcision. The sign that you indeed are a Jew. Which was basically in Genesis 17. But, but that's all an expression of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Which is really one of the most important passages in all the Bible. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. If you haven't memorized or you don't know about that, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is huge. The first 11 chapters deal with the creation of the world, the worldwide flood, the, the, the covering of the earth with the nations, the people being spread out. And then we get to Abraham in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And it changes everything. It changes from a focus upon the world to a focus on an individual, a focus upon a, a family, a focus upon a nation. And it says in, in uh, Genesis 12, how the Lord appeared to Abraham... He said, go out from your house, go out from your kindred, go into the land that I will, will give to you, that I will show you. And then the Lord made several other promises to him. Not only the land, but listen to what he says, Genesis 12, 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You hear the blessing over and over and over again. And in two verses, it comes up, whatever, six or seven times. That I'm going to bless you, and you are going to be a blessing. I'll bless your family, and I will bless everything. It says the, the, God, the promise that God made to Abraham is known as the Abrahamic covenant. It's the, the, land, the promise of, of land. It's the, the promise of having a seed that is a family, it's offspring. And the promise of just blessing. So land, seed, and blessing was promised to Abraham not only is this land, but this blessing was a blessing of offspring. They would children, he would have many children, and these many children would have many children, who would have many children, and so much so from the family of, of Abraham that there would be a great nation, and that God promised to bless that nation. God promised to protect that nation, cursing anyone who would curse that nation. And God repeated this promise often. Genesis 26, 2 through 4, 22, I'm sorry, 42 through 43. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I will tell you. This is to Isaac, is what he says. So don't go into Egypt. Go down and sojourn in this land. And I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And I will give you offspring to all these lands. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Almost exactly the same thing that he told to Abraham, he told to Isaac. About, go into this land, and we're going to give you the land. And your offspring's going to multiply, and you're going to be a blessing. He said the same thing to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13 and 14. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God, Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. There's the land. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. There's the, the, the seed that's going to go to the nations. And you shall spread abroad to the east and the west, to the north and the south. And in you and in your offspring 
shall all the families of the earth be blessed. These are the sorts of covenants, these are the sorts of promises that Paul is talking about here in verse 8, showing and giving to the patriarchs. And if you miss this promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the whole Bible doesn't make sense to you. Because Exodus only makes sense when you understand these promises. That God had made such a promise to the people of Israel when they were in slavery that he went and he brought them out and he rescued them. Joshua doesn't make sense because it's his people that he's bringing into the land. And the the whole reason why was because the promises of Abraham. Listen to the end of Joshua. Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And really, that's the thrust of the Old Testament, is that God promises to Abraham... To this nation, he builds up this nation, he protects that nation, he rescues that nation, he brings them in just as he promised, everything that he had swore. He's a truthful God. Romans 12, 8. I tell you, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises. Right? And that's the story of the Old Testament. God watching and guarding and blessing these people because he'd made promises to them. Even when they went astray, like in the book of Judges. They went astray. What did God do? God heard their cry and he raised up the judges to deliver them and protect them. Even when they were were disobedient and uncontent with having the Lord their God be their king and and asking for another king, a human king, God still blessed them. And in fact, he blessed them abundantly when he said to David that there would be an ultimate king who would sit on the throne of David forever. The Davidic covenant really is an expansion upon the Abrahamic covenant. Listen to what the Lord said to David. 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That just the king is going to come. This, this Messiah is going to come from the line of David. It's a promise that God made to, to the fathers. The promise of the Messiah would come to rule and reign forever. He'd sit upon David's throne throughout eternity. And when David the Messiah would come, he'd turn the hearts of the people of Israel to the Lord. That, it's called the New Covenant, which is really just an expansion upon the Davidic Covenant, expansion upon the Abrahamic Covenant, to be bigger. And it says when he comes, he's going to pierce deep into your hearts. He said this, for this is the covenant that I'll make with those of the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, these are the sorts of promises that that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 15. The the promise to bless the nation of Israel. The promise to send the Messiah to Israel. And the promise to change the hearts of Israel and forgive their sins. All these are wrapped up in the promise of the Old Testament. And Israel could bank on it, saying, God had promised this. It's going to come to pass. And that's why Jesus came as a servant. 
And that's why Jesus came to die. He came to confirm the promises of God. Romans 8.15, He came to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And so when Jesus entered Jerusalem upon the donkey on that day, realizing that it, realized it was the coming and fulfillment of God's promise to the nation of Israel, He was coming as their Messiah in accordance with all the promises that was all spoken of the patriarchs. I mean, it's, it's, it's as if they, they could expect it. So maybe to give you some sort of illustration of this, I'm just thinking about, say, an inheritance. Suppose you have a, a son of a, of a wealthy father who owns millions and millions and millions. And, and he's there just living through his life. And, and there, there's a time he knows, okay, I, I'm the heir, right? The only son. And I know that when my, my father passes away, I'm not looking forward to that day, but I know when he passes away, what do I get? I get everything. Legal, he's promised to give it to me. He's written it up on a deed. He's written it up on his, uh, his will and his trust. It's all coming to me. And, and it's, just, it's just like a promise. Like, like it's been promised to him. It's there. It's ready. And it's going to be given to him. When, it, when his dad dies, it's just all there. It's like sure and secure. And, and that's what Jesus came as. This, this promise in the Old Testament uh, this person that would come, that would come and deliver them, that would fulfill all the promises that Abraham had to, to truly bless them in every si- single way, to be the Messiah to sit on the throne, to transform the hearts of Israel. It's like, it's going to come. He promised. But there's another reason why Jesus came as a servant. And this one's a little bit different. This isn't to the Jews with whom he had promised who was secure. This was to the Gentiles to whom he had made no promises. Look at verse 9. In order that God, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Grammatically, it links back to verse 8. Here's how it reads. For I tell you that Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Now, I love this point. I love mercy and I love grace. In fact, right, the purpose of our church is we exist to enjoy His grace. I just think that that's the way to motivate Christians is to understand the grace of God in our lives. And I love this point because Jesus didn't come as a, as a servant to the Gentiles because of any obligation to the Lord. He made no promises to the Gentiles like He made to the patriarchs. You can search the Bible through and through and you won't find any promise to the Gentiles that come anywhere near what was promised to the Jews. They were promised massive number. God was going to protect them. God was going to go overlook them. He was going to be their God. Any Gentile who would come into the kingdom, and there were some who came in, they came in as proselytes. They came in as outsiders. And they came in, and they were always outsiders. In fact, you even see that in the temple. When a, when a Gentile would come into the temple, they could only go so far. They couldn't go as far as a Jew could go. Because they were always an outsider. Oh yes, they had the blessings, but from the Jewish standpoint... And very biblically, is that, is that in the Old Testament era, you had this cup of blessing that was filling up. All the Jews were getting all this blessing, and then everything that, that frothed over, that, that bubbled over, that was what the Gentiles got. It's a little bit like when you take a, a cup and you pour Coke into there with a bunch of ice, and, and it, it foams up and it starts overflowing. Well, that's the Gentiles. They just get the overflow of the fizz. But the Jews got the substance of the Coca-Cola because a Gentile had no promise of continual blessing, no lasting promises upon his descendants like the, the Jews did. But that was the point that Jesus came not only to show that he fulfills promises, 
but also to show that he's abundantly merciful. That's what we see here in verse 9 again. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In prayer in the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been looking through Ephesians 2 just to prompt our prayers. Spending whatever, maybe five minutes just thinking about, reflecting upon Ephesians 2. And Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, speak about the grace of God in our lives. It, it begins with our sin. The first three verses speak about how dead we are. We were in our sin, both Jews and Gentiles. It says, you Gentiles, you were dead. And Paul says that we too, Paul, the, the Jews, were by nature children of wrath just as the rest. But God, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. That, that, that's grace coming through faith that Jesus comes and makes people alive in him. In our salvation, the, the point made in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is all by his grace. It, it, it's not of ourselves. It, it's, it's not our doing. It, it's, it's all God's doing. And Ephesians 2, 7 tells us why he saved us this way. It's very parallel to our first here. It says this, so that in the coming ages, we're saved by grace, okay? We're, we're saved not by our works. We're, we're saved not by our efforts. We're not saved by anything we've done in ourselves. So that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, when it's all said and done, and we're all in heaven with glory, and we're with the redeemed, and, and the earth has passed away, and the new earth has come, our presence in heaven will be an opportunity for God to boast of his grace towards us. That's what Ephesians 2, 7 says. God will say, hey, hey, look at Bill. See him? See Bill? He's here only because of my grace. Or, or look at Fred. See Fred? He's here only because of my grace. Or see Martha, see her here? She's here only because of my grace. And it's an opportunity then for God to be magnified for his grace. Ephesians 2, 7 again. So that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, anyone who comes to faith and, and enjoys the pleasures of heaven with the redeemed are only there by God's grace. And we are there as objects of God's grace so that God's grace is even magnified in a greater way. And that is Romans chapter 15, verse 9. Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Yes, God was merciful to them, but it has a, a worship perspective that God might glorify him for his mercy. You know, in this room here, we're predominantly Gentiles. I don't know of any Jewish people here today who've come to Christ. You realize that we are here today, all of us, only because the mercy of God. No, there is, and we're not here because we're good. We're not here because of deeds we've done. We're only here because of the mercy of God. And we are in this room here, what? To glorify God for His mercy. That's why the, the motto of our church is so helpful, right? That we exist to enjoy His grace and to extend His glory, to, to glorify God for His grace towards us. And I just, I, I think this is the key to the Christian life. If you understand this and the undeserved favor that we receive through faith in Christ, your heart will be filled. <clears throat> you can't help but to go any place and to tell people about Jesus. Like, like, unlike the Jews, we had no promises that God would bless us. In fact, it says later in Ephesians 2 how hopeless it really was. Paul wrote this, remember that you were at that time 
separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were separated from Christ, meaning that we were Jewish people, had no connection to the Messiah. The Jewish people had a connection to the Messiah because they had the promises, but we were not. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We weren't part of the people of God. We were strangers to the covenant of promise because a promise came to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. And we had thus no hope. And we had no God in this world. That's the state of the Gentiles before Christ came as a servant, hopeless and dark. But when Jesus came, he changed everything. Ephesians 2 verse 13, one of those blessed buts of the Scripture. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Is it, is it Jew, Israel was over here, but we Gentiles were over here. We were outside like lepers just looking in. And then Christ came and he picked us up and he brought us in by his mercy and grace to a place that we did not deserve to go, which we had no, no like whatever, written inheritance, no will, no decree. There was nothing that brought us there. But by the end of Ephesians chapter 2, he says, So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. We're not outside anymore, but mercy has brought us in so that we enjoy the fullness of the promises to the Jews that have not necessarily even just spilled over to us, but Jesus the Messiah has even come to us. That is the last part of the Abrahamic covenant. Is I bless you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through Abraham would come David, would come the Messiah, and in him all the families of the earth will be blessed, that we receive the blessings of, of Jesus like the Jews. But it was promised to the Jews, but to us it's come by mercy, and that changes everything. The sacrifice of Christ has brought us into his kingdom, and now we glorify God for his mercy. And that's the only reason we're here. Okay, here's an illustration of that. Um, as opposed to a, a, a will or a, a trust, as most all of you know, I, I applied for a, a grant for a sabbatical next summer. Um, this Lilly Foundation, they, they provide like 150 churches with grants of up to $50,000 to help just rejuvenate a pastor, help a pastor get away from the people pressures that he faces for years. And, um, but it's a grant. And uh, like one of the things that, it's, that, that was submitted this past week, I, I submitted it this past week, uh, you all submitted it, it's a congregation that submits it really is what happens. Um, but even though there might be 150, 100 so that they, they grant every year, I don't know how many apply, I, it's all I know is that it's highly competitive and chances are against that happening. If it does, I mean, it's like $37,000 we get, right? just, just to help pay a pastor while I'm gone, just helps fund some of this stuff, just a wonderful thing. But you know what? None of that's promised us. None of it is. If it comes to us, how's it come? Totally by God's grace. Totally by the grace of this institution. There, there's nothing in it that merits it whatsoever. And, and, and all that's happened, if we don't get it, then it's just helped us think a little bit about a sabbatical and what, what that means. But that's mercy. Right? That it just, it just comes upon you. It, it's not deserved in any way. And if it comes upon us, we're like... Woohoo! Great. That's what God's mercy is. See, we don't have any promise from this foundation to give us anything. And like Gentiles, we don't have any promises before God 
all we have is prophecies. Maybe that's semantics there, but prophecies are a little bit different than promises. Promises, I'm going to bless you. Prophecies are a little bit different, which Paul gives here in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. He gives four of them. There's like, like subtle, kind of tucked away in, in all different genres of Scripture. They come from the, the law and the Psalms and the prophets. How the Old Testament texts prophesy of the Gentiles coming in and worshiping with the Jews. And I'm sure the Jews in those days understood, yeah, yeah, the Gentiles are worshiping for us. They're out in the outer courtyard, but we're here. It's like right there in the narthex, they're praising God. But see, they're part of it. They're, they're with us. They didn't realize the full impact. It had no means that they come in and to be with us. So the Jews weren't against the Gentiles worshiping, um, but I don't think they quite understood it like the way that Paul is now embracing it and understanding it. And Paul brings in these different contexts as if to say that it's not just, not just one author that prophesies the Gentiles coming in, it's all the authors. The first quote here comes from Psalm 18, verse 49. Verse 9, he says this, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. This is David writing. David praising God for his deliverance. It's really how, how the psalm begins. Psalm 18, 2 and 3. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. And, and throughout Psalm 18, he just prophesies. Of, he just tells of how he was in trouble and God delivered him. How he was facing danger and how God delivered him. How God protected him from his, his enemies. And at the end of the psalm is Paul's quote. Psalm 18, verse 49. For this, David says, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. It, it, it's as if David's saying this. You know what? The Gentiles are in the audience. And um, I'm on America's Got Talent. And I'm up there and I'm singing God's praise among the Gentiles. Like they're passive and sitting there. But David says, I'm singing your praise among them. And Paul, of course, includes that to say here that the Gentiles are going to hear it and rejoice in what the Lord has done for David and for his people. And so that's like, that's like one stage. And, and then it gets even further. If, if you go into the next one in verse 10, and again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So no longer just out there the prophecy is saying, hey, you come in and you be right with the people of God. This quote comes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. It's Moses' final words to the people of Israel. The song of Moses that, that rehearses some of the story of the people of Israel. And he calls them to, to learn from history. Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. As he says, he says just, just think about what happened. And he rehearses how the Lord brought Jacob into the land. And he told about how, how Israel then grew fat and forsook the Lord, scoffed the rock of their salvation, and they went after other gods. And then, do, and then uh, Moses basically warning the people, saying, you know that God will judge. He will judge those who forsake Him. And, and then in verse 43, it comes by way of evangelism. And again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And the message is clear to the Gentiles. Come and rejoice, but you need to repent and you need to turn and you need to follow this one true worthy God who's going to follow after Him. So it's, it's more than just being outside, but it's, it's coming in and worshiping together with them, lest you be judged. The third quote comes from Psalm. It's a clear command to the Gentiles to be praising the Lord. It's from the shortest psalm in the Bible, 
children, if your parents ask you, can you memorize a psalm? You say, yes. What psalm do you want to memorize? You're going to memorize a psalm? Psalm 117. All right? Only the overachieving firstborn would say, Psalm 119. Don't say that. Psalm 117. It's two verses long. And it starts with this. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. The psalm ends like this. For great is His steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. It's a psalm of the, the faithfulness of God to all the peoples. And the Gentiles are even brought in to that. It, it, it's a clear evangelistic invitation that, that the Gentiles can come and worship the Lord. And I don't think the Jews of the Old Testament understood how deeply that means that they're going to come in and be fellow citizens with the saints. But that's what Paul is arguing, that we have seen His mercy and we're all part of one church now, Jew and Gentile, all together. And then the final quote brings in the hope of the Messiah. If you look at verse 12, this comes from Isaiah. So we've seen the Psalms in verses 9 and 11. We've seen the law in verse 10. And now we see one from the prophets. Isaiah says this, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And in him will the Gentiles hope. From Isaiah eleven ten speaks about a, a root coming up. It's talking about the Messiah. Uh, if you read Isaiah 11, you'll find out that Isaiah speaks about the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. Much like Isaiah 61, when Jesus preached that passage, when it went into to Nazareth. But it's the Spirit of the Lord resting upon this root. And, and, and his delight is in the fear of the Lord, right? A, a righteous branch, a righteous root coming up. And this is the one who brings in lasting peace. Isaiah 11, verse 6, when the wolf dwells with the lamb. And the prophecy then comes, in him will the Gentiles hope. That is the Gentiles without the promises are going to come and hope in God. Going to hope in the Messiah. And that's Paul's point that the Gentiles someday would glorify God for his mercy to them. And Paul says the day has come. And Rock Valley Bible Church, the testimony of the fact that the day has come. We who are Gentiles, so we glorify God for His mercy. We, we found our hope in Him. So if you haven't got my point, the second point is to show His mercy. God, God, Christ came as a servant to confirm His promise. And secondly, to show His mercy. And then thirdly, we'll go quick here, to give us hope. To give us hope. Verse 13. Paul finishes up this section with a prayer should be our prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He talks about hope because I think that's where verse 12 ends. You know, Paul is really masterful in how he, he's been weaving together these topics. He's worried about the unity of the church. So in chapter 14, he speaks about Jew and Gentiles together. And he says the principle of that is that you, you don't please yourself, you please others like Jesus did. And now we're getting to see how Jesus didn't please himself. He sacrificed himself. That was in chapter four, 15 last week. And then this weekend he's talking about, well, the Gentiles are being brought in. And pretty soon he's going to bring up 14 and following about how he's a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. Look at 15 verse 16. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He's going to talk then about his own missionary endeavors, because he's been talking about the Gentiles and how they're part of that, and then he's going to talk really about the crux, the purpose of his book. 
He's a missionary wanting support. He's bringing his letters, so he wants to be supported by them to go to Spain is really what he's wanting to do. And so here we see another link in his argument. He just links them together. And the link goes in verse 12 that in the Messiah, the Gentiles were hope. And so here in verse 12, he's talking about hope. That's what Paul's prayer centers around. Look look at what he calls God. He calls God the God of hope. That is the God who gives hope. You're discouraged? You downcast need encouragement? Need some hope? You can hope in God because He's going to fulfill all the promises towards you just as He filled it with the Jews. And you can hope in God because God has shown mercy to the Gentiles and He will surely show mercy to you if you just bend your knee and bow and and seek Him. He is the God of hope where hope comes from. And and hoping in God, look at the fruit of that. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Hoping in God is a source of joy and peace. People today look for Look for joy and peace in so many things. This event or that event or that show or or this thing on the internet or or this activity or this money or that activity or that vacation. But God of hope is the one who gives all joy and peace. How? By believing. By believing and trusting in Him. And and it's not just just by believing, but the believing works something. And so, so that, right, in your believing, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope that's just not having just a hope this is like abounding in hope this is having hope upon hope so the god of hope right gives us joy and peace in believing in him the holy spirit comes and we have abounding in hope which is really where we ought to be if, if we know how god has been merciful to the gentiles we know we know how much hope that gives to us in fact that is as we celebrate the lord's supper again today that's that's the whole purpose of it. It's a, it's a direction towards the Lord of hoping and trusting in Him. It says at the end of 1 Corinthians 11, it says, As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And, and that is right. We're looking towards the Lord's death and we're saying that there is our hope. That when, when He died and we're trusting in that and we're hoping that He is going to come back again and redeem us from our life. And so as we think about celebrating the Lord's Supper, I just want you to even think and reflect upon why, why Christ came. Why this, this man on a donkey came into Jerusalem. He came to confirm the promises of God. He came to show mercy to the Gentiles. And He came to give us hope. So let's bow our heads in prayer as we prepare to celebrate the Supper again this morning. Oh God, You have placed within us a heart to celebrate God, we celebrate many different things. We celebrate different holidays and events and people and relationships, achievements and joys. And Father, one thing that you have commanded us to rejoice in and to celebrate in is the, the Lord's Supper. And we're to think upon it and we're to think about it in, in remembrance of you. Think about all these holidays that we celebrate, all these birthdays or anniversaries. We're, we're celebrating, we're remembering what took place five years ago, ten years ago, two hundred years ago. God, and still here, we're remembering what took place two thousand years ago. God, as we celebrate this supper together, I pray, oh God, that you would examine our hearts, as Psalm 139 says, that you would search us and know us and try us. God, that we might be found 
of worshiping you with clean hands and pure hearts washed through the blood of Christ. I would pray, God, for mercy to rule and reign at Rock Valley Bible Church. God, would pray that you would allow us to understand what it means that, that we have no, no claim upon any promise that we have. God, but now in the New Testament, as believers in Christ, we have lots of promises we can, play, can claim. And as the people of God now, we can go to the Old Testament, lots of promises to claim. But before Christ came, we didn't have any. And I pray, oh God, that we would see just the, the mercy of Christ, the, the cross of Christ. I can just picture him, him even there with the disciples in that last supper. Knowing what's going to happen and knowing that his disciples had no clue what was going to happen. And yet he fully, for the joy set before him, he said, I eagerly desire to eat this meal because it changed everything. The redemption was no longer Moses. The redemption was now in Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would be with us as we celebrate the supper this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.